I'm nervous. <laughs> All right, let's just start. Okay. Hello. Get to it. Hello. Hey guys. Hi. How's it going? We're super awkward. Yeah. Well, this is our first time recording a podcast, so I would expect nothing less. <laughs> True. And we're already awkward ourselves. Yeah, exactly. I'm Andrea. This is Inhuman, the monster of Cleveland. The fucking monster of Cleveland. Ugh. This is a hard one, guys. This is a tough one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this podcast, we're specifically going to be covering the kidnapping and captivity of three Ohio girls, uh, Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina De Jesus. Um, the three of them were held captive and tortured for 10 years, and they miraculously escaped in May of 2013. They actually escaped on May 6th, 2013. So this year is the eighth anniversary. Did I do my math right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, um, I guess I want to explain like why we wanted to do this podcast, because it's kind of like random right. other than just the fact that we like true crime and we wanted to do a podcast um, yes we definitely share that <laughs> yes uh but one day I was listening to one of my favorite true crime podcasts and that's why we drink and they covered this story and I thought it was super interesting and heartbreaking and I was kind of like looking for more details and specifically I really like listening to podcasts that's all I do all day um and so I was looking Same. for a podcast that would kind of cover like the whole story in a season instead of just an episode, just because I felt like right. there were so many details. I wanted like more details. Um, when I started looking it up, there weren't any that covered it in a whole series. Like there are a few others that covered it in episodes, like either single or, you know, two part episodes, but nobody covered it in a whole series. So I messaged Andrea and I was like, Hey, want to do a podcast? And I was like, Hey, absolutely. Cause we had already talked about, we both wanted to start a podcast, but we just weren't sure like the dynamic of it, or even if we right. would do one together. So, right. And this just worked out perfectly. Um, it did. And this was a case I was interested in too. Um, I had heard it the first time on morbid podcast and another good one. I, I actually do remember, um, when they escaped, like I remember in 2013, really? I do, wow. I did, I didn't when you first brought it up, but then I started like thinking back and I remember like hearing about it and thinking like, oh my gosh, like how in the world could somebody be stuck in a basement for 10 years, which is only a, a sliver of the story, but right. I just remember being like, That's wow, like how could that, how could someone do that? Yeah. So, oh cause it was right around the time that, um, was it Amanda smart got kidnapped as well? Um, no, not Amanda uh, smart. What was her name? It's not Kristen smart. Cause that's the girl who 
they just solved her murder in Cal Poly. Um, yeah. Elizabeth Smart? Elizabeth Smart, yes. Right. Yeah, it was right yes. around the same time. Yep. Yeah, so that was kind of how it started. And we started doing more research. And then we both uh, bought their books. And uh, Andrea actually read Michelle's book. And I read the book that was written by both Amanda and Gina together. Um, and we decided to each not read the other books so that throughout the podcast, like we both know details of all of their stories, but this right. one is kind of a little more, we'll be getting more in-depth details from the other person. So before we get into it, I just wanted to give a general trigger warning for this entire story, the entire series. The story does involve a lot of discussion of sexual assault, torment, torture, captivity, mental and physical abuse, and more. Um, we will be as sensitive as possible. Um, we probably won't provide every single gruesome detail because nobody wants to hear that, but right. we also want to do the victims justice and we really want to cover this story correctly and thoroughly. So we just wanted to give that overall trigger warning. If there's anything super specific, we'll give trigger warnings throughout as well, but I just wanted to kind of throw that in there, um, for this whole podcast. Absolutely. So, it's very, Absolutely. it is very triggering. It gets real heavy. And um, fortunately, it does have a pretty happy ending. So at least we have that to look forward to. Um, but just for that simple fact, I knew and I told Haley from the gate, I was like, I don't want to focus on Ariel Castro's story. I don't want to go into great detail about that. So I, like she mentioned before, I really wanted to, um, focus on the girls and telling their stories because I've listened to lots of podcasts on this case documentaries I've read Michelle's book and while the you know the meat and potatoes of the story is the same some of the details are a little bit different so we wanted to dig into their books and really get um, their perspective their feelings their point of view on what happened to them so, um, you know, it is about their captor. So we will be giving a little bit of information about that, but we are focusing yeah. on the three women who were kidnapped. So yeah, let's get into it. <sighs> All right. So Ariel Castro, better known as the monster of Cleveland was a Puerto Rican and I don't know how to pronounce this word. So if you know how to pronounce it, you can say it and I'll repeat don't. it. And then you can cut that part out. <laughs> Ephebophilic. Ephebophilic. We'll go with that. The monster of Cleveland was a Puerto Rican. Ephephil. I can't say it. <laughs> Dang it. Why did I put that word in there? Ariel Castro, better known as the monster of Cleveland, was a Puerto Rican perverted serial rapist kidnapping piece of shit who held yep. captive, tortured, and raped Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, Georgina, also known as Gina de Jesus, in his Cleveland, Ohio home for over a decade. Okay, so um, Amanda and Gina's book, which is the one that I read, did go into some of Castro's history. So I wanted to just cover that here. And a lot of what I think both of us are going to be talking about did come from their books because that was kind of our main right. source. But just to like mention it, and we'll have all of our sources linked in the show notes as well, but we used um, 
the Morbid podcast, the episode of And That's Why We Drink, along with uh, two episodes of Generation Y that covered this. Right. Um, and then there was a BBC documentary as well that we both watched. Exactly. Um, but I know for me, like a lot of the details that I'm going to be sharing did come from Amanda and Gina's book. And that's like kind of why I'm excited that we're doing this podcast, because I feel like all the other ones I've listened to about this case, they maybe read one of their books or hadn't read their books yet. And I feel like there are a lot of details in their books that aren't covered in other sources. So hopefully we'll be able to kind of provide another side of the story in some cases. So yeah, absolutely. I feel like they definitely go into a lot more detail in their books. And I think you have to read both to really get the full story for sure. Right. Agreed. Um, Okay. So a little bit about this piece of shit that Andrea just introduced. Um, Yeah. Castro. Steaming pile of shit. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) He was born in Puerto Rico in the 60s. Um, his father actually abandoned his mother in Puerto Rico, um, and left her to raise him and his siblings. So after his father left them, she moved to Pennsylvania, but she left Ariel and his siblings in Puerto Rico with her mother. So she kind of sent money and gifts when she could for about two years, but the kids were living in Puerto Rico with her mom. Um, and eventually- Castro's mom returned to Puerto Rico and then brought her four kids with her back to Pennsylvania. Um, One of the things that Castro talks about a ton is that he claims that during those like two-ish years he was living in Puerto Rico with his grandma, that he was sexually abused by an older neighborhood boy. So this is really hard to like actually confirm because it was 50 plus years ago. Right. Um, he claims that he never reported the abuse and he talks about this both in a letter that was later found at his house. And he also confessed or talked about it when he was talking to the FBI agents and a court appointed psychiatrist, but a bunch of law enforcement officials believe that he made this up to defend his own behavior. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like something happened because the letter that he left, he wrote back in like 2004. So he knew that he was doing something wrong then, but it's not like right. he's only telling this for the first time when he was talking to the police, but either right. way, obviously this isn't an excuse for everything. No, absolutely did. not. Cause there's lots of people who get molested when they're children and they don't grow up to be raping, torturing pieces of shit. Like he right. is. Right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so that's what he claims. Um, and then when he was 12 years old, his mother moved the family to Cleveland, which is where his father was. Um, and they also had a lot of family there. They had like a family member that owned, um, a little grocery store kind of near where the girl girls were held captive. So they did have a lot of family there. Um, and so his mother wanted to move them there because even though they weren't together anymore, she wanted her kids to be close to their father. Um, but Castro would later say that he had no relationship with his father growing up, which makes sense because his father left. Um, and then he also claimed that his relationship with his mom was terrible 
he claimed to have been abandoned by both of his parents and that his mother was abusive. Hmm. But when he was an adult, he said that his mother did a good job raising him and he spent a lot of time with her, visiting her a lot while he held the girls captive. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He claims he that she like abandoned him but she also he also spent a lot of time with her which like that doesn't mean she didn't abuse him and stuff so kind of whatever fit his narrative at the time oh 100 percent. so that's what it sounds like yeah um in middle school castro was suspended for sexually harassing another student he was also known for being very racist and just he was just an awful person and people knew that. Um, and then mm-hmm. a year after graduating high school, when he was 20, he met his future wife, Gramilda or Nilda Figueroa. She was only 17 at the time. Um, Castro quickly became very possessive about her. He would limit what she could wear, what she could do. She even told her, quote, her place was at yeah, home fuck and that. he hated when she went outside without him. Like, wow. Excuse me. Um, so they got married and had kids and Nilda wanted to leave Castro, but she told her sister that she didn't know how she could since no one in her family could like support her and her kids. And mm-hmm. um, she was also afraid of Castro. So he was abusing her physically Uh, One day she did finally call the police and after being advised by the police to file a formal complaint, Castro threatened to kill her and the kids if she did. So she never did it. Um, He would also like listen to her phone conversations, not let her go anywhere. He was just super, super controlling. And then in April of 92, he bought the house on Seymour Avenue that would eventually become this awful house of horrors. Um, he nailed the windows shut, claiming it was a bad neighborhood. Um, Nilda confided in her sister, telling her that she wanted to take the kids and leave Castro. But Castro told her, quote, if you ever take my kids, I will kill you. So his abuse led to Nilda having like chronic headaches, blood clots, and even caused a brain tumor. She was diagnosed by this oh type my of tumor that is sometimes linked to injury or like trauma to the brain to the brain and there was one time where he literally she had just had brain surgery and he like started beating her like he just was terrible um and so after that happened the police did capture him um and he was behind bars for a very short period of time but a grand jury chose to not convict him since nilda didn't want to testify um, they didn't have enough evidence. And Nilda later told her sister that Castro had threatened to kill her and the kids if she testified. That's so. so unfortunate. That really is so unfortunate. Yeah. So she never got the justice that she deserved. And um, luckily, finally, right. in 1996, she was able to file a juvenile court petition to get full custody of the kids. She eventually had custody of all four by January 1997 which was the month I was born. Kind of creepy. Yay. Um, (laughs) And then uh, Castro, after that, met another woman named Lillian Rolden. Rolden, I think. She was about half his age. Um, Mm -hmm. 
she was with Castro until late 2002, so about two years. And that's when Castro decided to write her a letter saying that he, quote, loved her, but not enough to keep the relationship going. So police later found out that (laughs) this was several months after he kidnapped Michelle and that Michelle had been in the house when Lillian was staying there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like she was curious why she couldn't go into the basement and Castro just said he had like money locked up down there. Um, And then I believe after they broke up um, or like shortly before he like, she was out in his lawn and saw the tv on upstairs and was like why is that on and he was able to talk his way out of it um and she went to the house a few more times yeah that makes sense though yeah he like that's why he broke it off because he had michelle the whole time that he had the girls captive uh he worked as a school bus driver for 22 years after finally being fired in november which blows my fucking mind Mm mm-hmm I cannot believe he was in charge of children. Like that's mind boggling to me. I know. Um, he had violated tons of different rules. One time he even left children on the bus unattended. Um, so he finally, at one point there was, it was like the last straw and he got fired. Um, so yeah, basically he was really just a really shitty person. Um, he had yep. abused his wife for years but that's enough about him. Let's get into the story about the girls. Okay. So basically I'm just going to start out giving you some of Michelle Knight's background and a little bit of her life story um, before we get into her time in the actual um, horror house. And again, trigger warning, this is going to contain some child molestation, um, rape and incest um so just be forewarned okay so four foot seven michelle knight had anything but an easy life she was born on april 23rd 1981 in naples florida when she was a child she had dreams of becoming a firefighter or a veterinarian due to her love of fire engines and having once helped her mother deliver a litter of puppies, which honestly, that is like a dream of mine. (laughs) Fortunately though, all her dreams been mature at a very young age. Um, at this point she was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, and she actually made headlines, um, recounting her story of delivering her twin brothers. So not only did she deliver a litter of puppies, but she also helped deliver her twin brothers, Freddie and Eddie. So due to the fact that, um, you know, they had a really rough upbringing, Michelle had to step in and act as basically a second mother to her younger siblings. So they had it really rough, um, poverty stricken. They often lived in cars. They would rent houses where they lived with upwards of 15 family members at a time. In Michelle's book, Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Regained, she remembers aunts, uncles, and cousins that she didn't even know roaming the house that her, her brothers, and her mother shared. Wow. I know. I can't imagine that. I would just feel like I didn't have a place, you know? Yeah, like you don't have a home that's you know, your home is supposed to be like your safe space and you don't even have that. 
and she would um she discussed in her book how there would be times where she wouldn't even have a place to sleep she would have to sleep on the floor in her brother's room like she didn't have her own bedroom she didn't have her own bed um it was kind of just slim pickings like you end up where you end up basically that would um, be so scary like I know not only do you not have a home that's comfortable where you know you you have your family there and like it's your safe space but now you don't even have in that home where there's almost strangers if you don't know them even if they're family like you don't even have your own bedroom or your own bed where it's kind of like a safe space for you within this house that's supposed to be a safe space right oh I know Um, She also remembers at one point not having an oven or a microwave and having to heat up hot dogs for her and her brothers on a radiator. And they often ended up eating cold cans of SpaghettiOs and vegetables. Um, Yeah. She missed a lot of school due to the fact that she didn't have a ride or she had to stay home to help take care of her brothers. Um, When she did go to school, however... She was often bullied for her height and the fact that she was poor. Um, She had a lot of hand-me-down clothes and clothes from like the 60s and the 70s. I know it's so sad, but. Wow. And and kids are mean, man. Like, yeah, don't go to school with old clothes. You will get made fun of, which is just so ridiculous, but. That's so sad. It's like, so you can't be safe at home and then you can't go to school and be safe. You're just going to be made fun of exactly what do you do you don't have a place I know and she really I think she really did feel like an outcast yeah so needless to say you know her childhood was anything but ideal um around 12 years old Michelle began getting molested by an adult male family member and it eventually became a daily occurrence um sometimes to get some relief she would crush up sleeping pills and put them in his drink um, to try to avoid the abuse but finally enough was enough and at 14 years old Michelle ran away wow so yeah I can't imagine that like being 14 years old and just running away and being on your own and taking care of yourself like I didn't know jack shit when I was 14 right (laughs) I I I don't know I just don't think I could but I mean, like no. I said, enough was enough and she was fed yeah. up. So I don't the blame fact her. That, that was the better option, like leaving home and not having anywhere to go or like no plan, but that was the better option. That's just like heartbreaking and very telling. I right. think, um, she had nowhere to go. So she decided the safest place to try and get some sleep would be outside of a church. Um, she literally just slept basically on the sidewalk the following morning. I can't say morning. Why can't I, hold on, let me get a sip of drink. (laughs) The following morning, a man awoke her and she stated in her book that the man was kind to her and he looked like Arsenio Hall, which I don't know if you know who that is, but talk show show host from like the, what, late eighties, early nineties. That's great. Um, Luckily, the church had a kitchen and she was able to be fed. Um, She actually went there often for food and she recalled how good their fried chicken was. She also fell in love. I know I was like, yeah, she, she (laughs) could smell it outside of the church when she would walk up to it. And yeah, she loved that. Yeah. 
She also fell in love with the music and the community at the church. Um, There's actually an excerpt from her book where she recalled um, them singing the song Angel of Mine, which I'm pretty sure is like a pop song, but I think it would probably apply at church as well. Um, don't quote me on that because I'm not exactly sure, but don't go to church. So yeah, (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so she continued her life homeless and she ended up sleeping under a bridge in a blue trash can. Soon after she was approached by a drug dealer named sniper. Oh (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And he actually popped up. He actually propositioned Michelle to run drugs for him. And in turn, he would give her a place to sleep and he would pay her very generously. Um, Michelle, of course, like not having any viable choices at the time, she decided, hey, this sounds like a pretty good deal. And she accepted his offer. Like, I feel like I would have done that, like being 14 and having no way to make money, nowhere to go, like. And somebody's telling you, Hey, right. I'm going to pay you well. And you you're just thinking like, okay, like, I know that this isn't good, but it's money and I need to survive. Like I would have done it. Yeah. And the thing about Michelle is she seemed to have pretty good gut instinct, like with certain things, obviously, you know, some choices still led her down, you know, this, this terrible story that we're telling, but Right. She seemed to have really good gut instinct and she didn't feel like Sniper was dangerous, even though he was a drug dealer. Um, so she like trusted her gut in that way. So another young man lived at the house with Michelle and Sniper and they all actually became really close. Um, they were like a little family. They would play pool in the basement. They would cook dinner together. Um, Roderick, who was the other young runaway, he was Muslim and he actually gave Michelle one of his mother's jihabs as a token of his friendship. Wow. Um, which I thought was really sweet. And yeah. yeah. And he told her that I know, isn't that so sweet? And he told her that she was his sister now. Oh, my heart so, is melting. I know. And uh, it gets, yeah we'll get to it, but it gets really sad. Um, so not long after, um, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on the way you look at it, a sniper was taken into custody by the authorities and Michelle was forced back onto the streets. I'm surprised they didn't like arrest her. I think at the time, um, he she was he was alone she wasn't with like oh I see neither Michelle or Roderick was with him at the time um and he just got caught with drugs and was arrested okay yeah I know it was like she actually had something kind of good going and then right the rug was pulled right up from under her yeah so about two weeks later she and Roderick returned to the church to see if a were still serving meals and a friend of her parents spotted her and then told her father. And of course, her father came right over and violently forced Michelle back into his car. And she never saw Roderick or Sniper again. Yeah. That's so sad. I know. It sounded like for the first time in her probably whole life, she actually had family and people who yeah. genuinely cared about her. 
And it's just so sad to see that like taken from her over and over and over again. Right. Oh, and was that her biological father or her stepfather? That was her biological father. Yes. Oh, her wow, parents okay. were still together during this time. Okay. Um, but eventually they do split up. So in February, Michelle went back to school at 16. She was placed in the ninth grade due to being so behind in the ninth grade. Wow. She was often behind in school just for the simple fact that, um, she missed a lot of school. And I think she did have some delays. Um, she didn't go into a lot of detail in her book about it, but, some other sources I've read have um, kind of mentioned that she um, like would get confused easily and um, just had like some delays. I don't know how much truth there is to those rumors, but. Well, if you're not like even growing up, she was, she wasn't going to school all the time because she was taking care of her brother right. and getting bullied. So it wouldn't surprise me if exactly. like she was a little bit behind because she never had the opportunity to learn. Exactly. So, yeah. So she's 16 in the ninth grade. Um, She actually ended up meeting a boy um, who she, (laughs) who she calls Eric in her book. She does change um, some names in her book just for privacy, you know, reasons, but um, he was a football player. He was everything she needed, wanted, and more. And he made her feel special. He made her feel loved. And they ended up being, they ended up becoming really close. And then they started to get physical. And soon after Michelle became pregnant, unfortunately, the fairy tale was short-lived. She found out that Eric had another girlfriend and he um, eventually chose the other girl and stopped seeing Michelle altogether. Wow. I didn't know that. Which fuck you, Eric, if you're listening. Yeah. (laughs) I know. She just really keeps getting... That's what I'm saying. She was just dealt a really shitty hand of cards in life. And yeah. Um, but so at 18 years old, Michelle birthed Joseph Lee. Um, he was born a month early and she ended up laboring for a super long time, but he finally came and she called him Joey for short. And also she nicknamed him Huggy Bear, which I think is just so sweet. Aww. And yeah. It's very sad, but, um, so of course, Joey was the light of her life. She was over the moon in love with him, um, for one Christmas, you know, because they were still poverty stricken and they, she didn't have a lot of money. Um, she was on welfare at one point in time. Um, but one Christmas she made her son, a uh, Christmas tree out of branches And I know like she wanted his Christmas to be special and she didn't care what she had to do to make it special. And she got gifts from the family dollar and she wrapped them up all nice and cute and tucked them under the tree. Um, and this is, I know like it like breaks my heart and fills my heart at the same time. Cause you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. I know it's, it was her book is very emotional. I, I, I yeah. cried a lot. I was angry. There was a lot of, a lot of roller coaster of emotions going on. Um, but this particular Christmas memory 
is one that Michelle fondly and frequently uh, recalls during her imprisonment by Castro. Um, so it's definitely one thing that kept her fighting, kept her going. So that's one wow. of the reasons I felt the need to, to talk about it. Um, so eventually her parents split and her mother began dating a man that Michelle refers to as Carlos in her book. Again, a name that she changed. Um, he moved in with them when Joey was about six months old and Michelle started looking for a job so she could hopefully provide for her son and eventually move out. Um, as she was looking for jobs, she would have to ask her mom to look after Joey because for whatever reason, you can't bring your child to a interview, I guess. Um, it's like, I mean, a whole different tangent, but like yeah. <laughs> society if it was a man that had to take care of their child, I bet you they would be fine with that child coming to the interview. Like, yeah. Fuck society. We can, we can do better. Yeah. We can yeah. absolutely do better. Yes. <laughs> so one afternoon in June, her mother's boyfriend, Carlos somehow ended up babysitting Joey. Um, when Michelle got home that evening, Carlos was completely wasted um, he tried kind of rushing at Michelle. Um, there's not a lot of details as, as far as what that exactly entails, but I guess Joey got in the way and Carlos grabbed Joey by the leg and he ended up fracturing his knee. Um, and he was about two years old at this time. Jeez. So of course they rushed him to the hospital and, um, anytime there's a, injury with a child, especially something like this. Um, they know what to look for and child protective services was asked to step in. So, of which course, I don't like it. I get why they always, do I don't that. understand this fully, but I'm sure there's, I understand why they ask child protective, child protective services to step in. But what I don't understand is why they are so quick to take children away from their mothers without right. doing proper investigation, because before Joey even left the hospital, he was put into foster care. Um, and it's like probably just because Michelle was young, a young mom, right? Like, oh, she can't take care of him clearly when if they did a little bit of investigating, I mean, obviously that environment probably wasn't the best, but right. is foster care really better when there's a mom that is doing everything she can to take desperately, care of her child? Right, yeah. desperately doing everything she can. And also another thing was that Carlos called the hospital and confessed to what had happened um, with his sister's coercion, but he confessed that it was his fault and that he was the reason it happened that it wasn't Michelle's fault and they still took Joey away. So, right. So like, shouldn't he just go to jail and not be in the house and then Joey exactly his mother? Like, that's yeah, not you would good. think okay. that you would, you would think that that would be the rational or even, um, put Michelle and her son in a shelter. So they have refuge and they right. have safety. Right. But no, this is not the route that they took. It didn't matter. And they felt that Joey would be safer in a foster home. So um, her telling of this 
I highly recommend if you guys are into true crime and you find this case at all interesting to read Michelle's book and obviously Amanda and uh, Gina's book as well. But um, she goes into a lot greater detail with certain things, but her telling of uh, when they took Joey is very heartbreaking. Yeah, I definitely want to read her book when we're done going through it. Yeah. Um, So of course this broke Michelle, but she never gave up just like a mother, a good mother would. She never gave up. She continued looking for a job and trying to fight to get her son back. Um, Luckily, she was able to have supervised visitation, but due to, due to the fact that she did not have a vehicle, sometimes it would make it difficult for her to actually make it to those visitations. Um, which again, I just, that breaks my heart too, because all the things are stacked against her. Just, yeah. Like she's doing everything she can. Yeah. She would take the bus and sometimes she would walk miles and miles and miles to these visitations. So, yeah. So between visits with Joey and looking for a job, Michelle would spend her time with her cousin, Lisa and thankfully eventually moved in with her she remembers eating ramen and hanging out with friends one of them actually being emily castro who is ariel castro's daughter one of them oh wow i didn't know Um, that she i knew that she knew her but i didn't know she like knew her more than just like her name yeah they um so i think emily was 16 at the time 16 17 maybe Um, so she was much younger than, uh, Lisa and Michelle, but I get the way the, the way I understood the neighborhood to be is kind of everybody knows everybody and people hang out, hang out on their porches and you come up and say hi and hang out and speak and talk and all the things. And then it's just very casual to do that. So, right. They all just know each other. Yeah. So on August 23rd, 2002, Michelle, then 21, was running late to an appointment with social services to discuss regaining custody of her son. So she ended up getting like kind of turned around and lost, Um, even though she was uh, familiar with the neighborhood. She had issues, I guess, with direction sometimes. And she wandered into a local family dollar store to ask someone inside for directions. Um, she was unfamiliar with the address that she was supposed to be going to. And there she ran into a man that she recognized right away, which was Emily's father, Ariel Castro. Whew, that gives me chills. Just I know. Thinking like that it was one just those... one small choice would have changed right. everything. Right. It's one of those like, yeah, what if you would have made a different choice? like the butterfly effect yeah yeah Yeah. oh yeah that's it's heartbreaking and I feel like the only reason I'm not like extremely upset about it is because I know that they do escape eventually yeah still it's like one choice I know that shaped your whole life and that could be anybody I mean that could be any of us at any time um I guess he recognized her too from the neighborhood because he was friendly and she asked him if he knew where the address for her appointment was. And he actually offered her a ride, which she anxiously accepted because she was running late. Of course, you're going to like, this is like the most important thing in her life. Yeah. She's going 
to that appointment and is running late and needs, of course, she's going to accept a ride, especially from somebody that you recognize and know. Your like, friend's dad. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, she doesn't know him super well, but I mean, me being a um, paranoid over or overly like non-trusting of people, right? I personally wouldn't get into the car with him, but I never know in that situation and no one ever knows in that situation exactly what they would do. Because if I was right. fighting to get my son back, I would go to the ends of the earth, you know? Right. Exactly. And like, yeah, like I feel like now after listening to so much true crime, I wouldn't do that. But right. thinking back to like, before I listened to, to true crime, like who knows, I probably would have done that if it was somebody that I at least somewhat knew and I was going to get my son back. Like hell I'd do that for my dog like I know you know <laughs> exactly like it, exactly yeah, yeah. so <clears throat> let's see okay so once inside his disgusting trash-filled truck they started to drive um she kind of noticed that he was going in circles um almost not like obvious circles but she kept noticing some of the same you know, marks, landmarks on the side of the road. Um, he then told her he needed to stop by his house so he could check on his dog because she had just had puppies. And she he asked her if she liked puppies and maybe she would like to give one to her son. So right there, you know, very manipulative, um, very sneaky and conniving. Um, right, 100%. Yeah. Like, and knowing a young girl... Yeah. Would, would love to have a puppy, especially for her son. So she was very excited and she willingly went inside his house, which is a decision she would regret for the rest of her life. However, this is a fact. I I know this is a fact that I have not heard in any other podcast, but as she was walking into his house, she noticed a neighbor which was an older white man. And she even said hello to him. Wow. Yeah. I was like, Castro must've not seen that because I bet if he saw that and was like aware of that, he would have let her go. Yeah. I just couldn't believe that because I mean, as we'll get into later, we know that she didn't have a lot of media coverage, but right. I just can't, I just can't believe it. Um, So ignoring all the red flags, she went into his putrid foul house. She followed him upstairs to pick out a puppy. Um, At the top of the stairs, they went into a white room first, and then they um, went through, I guess, a closet or bathroom. I think two of the rooms were kind of like connected. Like you had to go through one to get to the other. Yeah. Almost like a back storage room or something. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so at the top of the stairs, they went into the white room and then they went through into the pink room. And then at that moment, he slammed the door and locked it. Um, Michelle panicked, of course, and she screamed at him. I have to get to my appointment. What are you doing? And Castro turned around and snarled and said, if you scream again, I will kill you. So I think we are going to end episode one there. Um, like I said, I just wanted to get into Michelle's life and her backstory uh, before we get into all the gritty details of her time in the house. Um, 
but and how long was she she was there like 11 years I think right yeah yep she was kidnapped yep in 2002 and they escaped in 2013. Wow. So yeah, we'll get into that more next week. And, you know, obviously, um, there were, there was a lot of stuff that happened and she was there, I think for two years before Amanda, um, or a year, I think before Amanda and two years before Gina. Um, so she endured a whole bunch. And then even when he, uh, captured both Amanda and Gina, he didn't have them together for quite some time. So, yeah. you know, Andrea and I were trying to figure out the best way to cover this. And so I think we're going to kind of go in the route of like covering each one individually up until the time where they're together. And then we'll kind of go into that. Uh, Cause it was a totally different dynamic. I feel like once they, they went from being like individual captors to like now this is like their life and they were, you know, obviously wanting to escape, but it was a totally different, it was like survival mode at the beginning versus, you know, a different type of survival mode. Like it's, you knew, they knew that they were in it for the long haul, I feel like. And there's a whole different dynamic too, when you have other people in the house, because not only do you want to protect yourself, but you almost want to protect them as well, especially because, you know, Michelle was the oldest. And even though, which we'll get into that, you know, like you said, they were kept separate and then some were together and then so on and so forth. Um, I still think there was that like wanting to protect and try to keep, you know, Castro away from, especially Gina as much as possible, but right. Well, and I don't know how, if Michelle got into this in her book, but you know, he, Castro tried to turn them against each other. Like he would lie to them and tell them, you know, that the other one was gonna, was thinking this about them or whatever. And I'll, I'll get into more of that too. Cause there were a lot of details in Amanda and Gina's book, but you know, so it's like, you'd think like, okay, we're all in this together now, but then you don't know what to believe. And if he's telling you something like it's, you know, that's your whole life. He's like the person that literally controls every, everything of your life. And if he's telling you something, it'd be kind of hard to not believe it. Like, right. And I actually, I had heard that in other podcasts. Um, like I heard it when I listened to the morbid podcast and I think they talked about it in the generation Y podcast but actually Michelle didn't really go into depth about that I mean she she did say that um you know Castro would do things to try to make them jealous of each other but she didn't go into a lot of great detail as to what those things were and I think maybe because I mean I really don't know what her reasoning is for that I I guess maybe she just felt like it wasn't important because it was you know in the long run it was just silly emotions that you're feeling when you that is your whole world like you said right what are you supposed to do that's all you have and and yeah mental anguish and turmoil yeah I just can't imagine it's more than just physical abuse it's the emotional and like mental control um right but but we'll get into more of that so um I guess we'll be releasing every Thursday um yep and every Thursday 
And if you guys want, you can follow us over on Instagram. We do have an Instagram and it is called inhuman underscore podcast. So give us a follower over there. (laughs) And we'll, uh, (laughs) we'll also link our personal Instagrams over there. Um, but let us know what you guys think of the podcast. I'm absolutely excited. I'm nervous that nobody's going to listen <laughs> um, and nervous that I say so and um 18,000 times you can okay, edit well, that well I out. didn't notice like <laughs> oh I just said like but I didn't notice you saying it so hopefully <laughs> I don't think you did a ton okay um, <laughs> or if you did I just do it too and didn't notice at all in that case well yeah I just want to thank you guys so much for listening though we're so excited yeah, we're, we've been very excited about this for a good like month and a half now. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you for listening. I guess I think with podcasts, you want people to subscribe. Yeah, I subscribe. I think subscribe so. Yeah. So that you'll we get like be on all the networks, not networks. What are they called? All the platforms. platforms. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, we hopefully. don't know yet, but hopefully. Um, and yeah, subscribe, leave us a review we'd love to like hear you guys thoughts if you know about the case um you know thoughts yes. or if you don't know about it like let us know what you thought of the first episode yeah if you guys know about the case we would love to hear what your thoughts are and yeah and if you don't yeah leave us leave us a review we, we like constructive criticism yeah We're down for that leave us a good review five stars <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, so we need like a over, catchphrase over and over out. And out. <laughs> over and out. Oh over gosh, we're such nerds. I know. We'll yeah. have to we'll have to come up with something better for next the next episode. Yeah, we'll we'll come up with something. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs>